You're listening to Retro Sermons, timeless lessons from the Bible spoken by voices of the past. You can't, uh, if you can't hear me, maybe you'll be like the fellow who slipped in late to a service one time and uh, sat on the back row and finally he reached over and whispered to one of the other men said, I can't hear the preacher. And this fellow says, you don't know how fortunate you are. I'm going to talk tonight on the subject, the social gospel. And many people don't know what it is. They, they really don't have any understanding of it. If you want a text for this lesson, there's one short verse in the third chapter of the Colossian letter that fits it exactly. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Or set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. I want to begin like this. Our forefathers, living under conditions of danger and privation and hardship, having to work long, difficult hours for a bare living, our forefathers found it a whole lot easier to think about heaven and hope for heaven and work for it than our generation finds it. We have things pretty easy compared to what our fathers had. They didn't know anything about eight-hour days and five-day weeks. And as this world in which we live has grown increasingly attractive, heaven comparatively has lost its attractiveness. All we sing about it, and we hear sermons about it occasionally, but the people of our generation simply aren't interested too much in heaven. It's not nearly so real to us as it was to our fathers. We live in this world, of this world, and for this world. I was in a home some years ago, picked up a magazine, a women's magazine, and was leafing through it, came across a column by a very well-known lady columnist, Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, who wrote under the caption, If You Ask Me. Well, somebody had asked her, What do you think of immortality? And Eleanor replied, I rarely ever think anything of it. Why should I when there's so little I can do about it? Now, here was a woman who, by her own standards, I'm sure, 
would have considered herself a very religious woman. World citizen, altruistic, outgoing, compassionate to those who are in distress and need, concerned for the underprivileged, she would, she would have described herself as a religious woman. But she frankly said, I, I rarely give a passing thought to the life to come. Worldly minded. That's the biggest problem that the church faces in our generation. Conditions have vastly changed since, uh, even since I was a child. I grew up in a home that didn't even have any screens. And the way we kept the flies off of the table, we'd get a branch off of a tree and wave it over the table. Or we'd get a long stick and, and take a newspaper and split it up, you know, and, to, and, and, and wave it over the table like this. Most of you are too young, far too young, to ever heard of anything like that, but that's what we did. And, and so far as uh, running water, we didn't have any running water in my home. We, we had an old well down under the hill, and... And my shoulders still ache when I remember those two big heavy buckets on Saturday. Well, Saturday night was back night. And, and so we'd always have to bring up lots of water on Saturdays. We didn't have a bathtub. We had an old number two wash tub. And we'd put it in by the kitchen stove in the wintertime. And beginning from the, from the least to the eldest, we'd get our Saturday night bath. I remember that particularly because... One cold winter night, I jumped out of that old tub, shivering all over, and, and backed into a red-hot stove. I was calculated to make an impression, which it did. Uh, the, world is, the world in which we live has changed. With our air-conditioned buildings, carpets on the floor, Refrigerators, televisions, telephones, air-conditioned automobiles, jet planes. This world has become tremendously attractive, and heaven has faded into the distance. Now, with that as a background, let me start in like this. A hundred years ago, or a hundred and fifty years ago, every church whoever they were, Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, Congregational, Methodist, whoever they were, Unitarian, every church believed and taught and gave itself to the teaching that this life is but a probationary period. This is a preparation for the life to come. And it is the mission of the church to prepare men for heaven. And they preach sermons about eternal heaven, eternal hell. There's a great day coming. Are you ready for the judgment day? Sing songs like we're going to sing in our invitation song. Careless soul, why will you wander? Are you ready to meet God? Prepare to meet thy God. Are you ready for the judgment day? Preach sermons like that. Everybody recognized that the mission of the church is to prepare men, prepare men for eternity. Men. 
in, in 1869, 114 years ago, Charles Darwin published a book called The Origin of Species. It set forth the evolutionary hypothesis. The speculation, the, the hypothesis, the guess that, that maybe man was not created uh, as the, the biblical story sets forth, but perhaps he is here through a long process of evolutionary mutation, change, development. And that he has uh, come up from the lower order of creation. Now, Charles Darwin was not the first to suggest the evolutionary possibility. He was the first to popularize it. His writings gained wide currency. They were read, they, they went into numerous editions and were read and discussed this, this idea this evolutionary hypothesis swept the whole scientific world. And it was discussed in all kinds of scientific meetings. People gave lectures on it. They wrote books, tracts, pamphlets. They had debates about it. And finally, this thing began to get into the churches. Many people began to wonder if the biblical story of creation is not what we have supposed it to be, if, if this is simply folklore or mythology, it may be that the rest of the Bible is of the same sort. All this story about Jonah and the whale and this story about a great flood covering the face of the earth. Maybe these things are simply folklore like the Genesis story of creation. How can we know? All right. Thousands of people, multiplied thousands, began to be uncertain, uneasy, and a little bit doubtful as to what they believe. Among this number were a considerable company of clergymen, preachers. Now take a look. Here's a man, let's say he's 50 years old. He's preaching for one of the leading churches in the city. Well, a thousand members. He's a man of influence. He's respected. He's a community leader. He's very active in civic projects. He perhaps is on the school board. He is a man whom people honor and respect. But over a period of a few weeks or months or a year or two, it finally begins to come through to him that he no longer believes what he's been preaching. 
He cannot go into the pulpit and preach on heaven and hell because he's not sure that he believes there is a heaven and hell. And as for this story of creation in Genesis, he just can't preach that anymore. And these miracles about Christ being born of a virgin, well, he's not sure he believes that anymore. And all these miraculous happenings, we live in a law, we live in a world that's governed by law. The laws of nature are absolutely dependable and invariable. They do not fluctuate. They remain constant. And so this preacher begins to worry. He's an honorable man, honest. He wouldn't take money under false pretenses. And deep within his heart he has a real serious problem. What shall I do? I can't preach these sermons I've been preaching. I don't know about the cross of Christ. What, what has that to do with, with how I live? I don't know whether there is a judgment or not. Or heaven or hell or even a future life. I really, I really don't know whether there is a God or not. Perhaps there is, but I, I just can't be certain of it. I just don't know. Every time he gets a paycheck from the church treasurer, he has a little qualm of conscience about it, a little, little uneasy feeling. Here these people all expect me to preach like I used to preach, and I just can't do it anymore. What shall I do? I'm too old to learn another trade. Here I have security. I have the respect, the affection of these people. They love me. What shall I do? I can't go out and learn how to plow in the field or mix cement. I don't know how to lay bricks. I don't know how to do anything. And yet, and yet, I simply cannot preach like I've been preaching. Then as he wrestles with this problem, deeply distressed and deeply disturbed, finally another thought comes to him. He says, now then, before I throw all this away, I went to college. I went to the seminary. I spent years in training, professional preparation. I have achieved fulfillment, success, prominence in my work before I throw all this away and start all over from the bottom let me contemplate this fact that the mission of the church is not only spiritual the mission of the church is also social The church not only has an obligation to try to prepare men for eternity if there be any place to prepare for. The church not only has that mission, 
it also has a mission to society as it is in this present world. Now, it may well be that I can't preach about this spiritual mission anymore, or at least not much. I, I can give a passing reference to it now and then. It may well be that I'll have to sort of forget about that, but on this one, on this social thing, I can really ring the bell. I can go to town on that. I know I can preach on that with, in good conscience. Race relations. I can encourage the church to build all kinds of benevolent and uh, elimusinary institutions. Hospitals. Homes for the aged. Children's homes. Recreation centers. Get the kids off of the slum, uh, out of the slums and off the streets in the summertime. I can encourage the churches to provide every kind of facility to encourage men to live together on this earth in peace and harmony and goodwill. I can really fight the liquor traffic. I can encourage churches to become involved. I can encourage the members to become involved in political affairs. Let good people get into the government. I can encourage the church to build hospitals that will not only provide care for the, for the sick who can pay for it, but will provide care for those who cannot pay. I can do that. I can organize Boy Scout troops or Girl Scout troops. I can get the churches to start hobby shops and really make this world a better place in which to live. Now, maybe I can't do the other very much. Uh, I kind of throw in the towel on that one. I sort of forget about that one. But I can really work on this other one. Now, this is what is known in, uh, in uh, church history as the social gospel. A lot of people think the word social gospel means having socials. You know, having a church picnic and uh, everybody getting involved in, uh, in, in social affairs. That's not it, really. The social gospel is getting the church as such involved in social projects, welfare, benevolence, social uplift uh, movements. You know, 100 and, well, in, in 1840, 135 years ago, there was only one, only one church-supported orphan home in the whole United States. The Lutherans had one. Only one. Methodists didn't have any. The Baptists didn't have any. The Presbyterians didn't have any. Churches of Christ didn't have any. Only one in the whole nation. But then came the Civil War, and in the, in the 30 years from 1870 to 1900, the social gospel spread like wildfire through all the churches. 
and hundreds of hospitals were built. Orphan homes were started. Old folks' homes were started. Uh, various kinds of, of educational institutions were started, church-sponsored, church-supported, recreation centers. And the churches became tremendously involved in all kinds of social projects. I mentioned this morning that a former classmate of mine, Charlie Kramer, is now president, or not president, he's a moderator of the Southern Presbyterian Church. Pretty high office. And, uh, and he's, a, he's a real fine man. Very intelligent man. Well, even though he's a Presbyterian and I'm a Christian, and they aren't the same, we have maintained friendship through the years. And a few years ago, my wife and I were over in North Carolina. And at that time, uh, Dr. Kramer was preaching for the, uh, one of the biggest Presbyterian churches in the country, the church at Charlotte, North Carolina. We spent the night with him. And uh, I said, Charlie, are you a modernist? He said, well, I have, I have an indoor bathroom, if that's what you're talking about. I said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. So he kind of laughed about it. And uh, he took me down and, and, and showed me his church. It's, it's a huge church. And as we went through it, he said, we have three kitchens and three fellowship halls in this congregation, bank, banqueting rooms. And he said, ordinarily, every one of these kitchens is busy at least five nights a week. Various groups would, would be meeting, you know, the Boy Scouts, the Young Mothers Club, the Businessmen's Association, uh, the Youth Fellowship, whatever it may be. He said, we have all three of these kitchens busy on an average five nights a week feeding people in the church. It, it was the, his idea, of course, that this is a worthy project. We get all of our people together and then we get them interested in all kinds of social welfare projects. All right. The churches of Christ were not affected by the social gospel movement in the last century. We're always about 50 years behind our denominational friends and many things. We weren't affected by it. Uh, this, this was a part of the, of the reason for the division in the Christian church incident. Now, they were, but the churches of Christ were not affected by it. We came right on through that. We had no problem with it until the Second World War in the 1840s, just 30 years ago, in, in uh, the 1940s, excuse me, uh, just 30 years ago, in, uh, in 1939, which would be, what, 34 years ago, there were only seven little orphan homes among all the churches of Christ, only seven little groups 
Columbia, Tennessee, and uh, Marlton, Arkansas, and Quinlan home down in Bo uh, home down in Quinlan, Texas. One out in Ontario, California. Uh, what was the other one? A anyhow, only seven of them. But in the years from from nineteen and forty five to nineteen and seventy, twenty five years, nearly a hundred such little projects got underway. Nearly a hundred. Either homes for dependent children or homes for the aged or homes for unwed mothers or homes for young, uh, well, I, I don't want to call them delinquent boys, but, but boys who were in trouble. When I was in uh, Oklahoma City, preaching for the Tenth and Francis Church, we had about a thousand members, and, and the church had a secretary. Uh, I think I, I preached for two churches that had full-time church secretaries. She did the bulletin. I, just, I, I hated that stuff. I did it all right, but uh, uh, I was a... I was a horrible mimeographer, and she took care of all that and, and kept the rules up and sent out cards to the absentees and, and uh, told me what I was supposed to do, uh, and, and all this sort of thing. All right, my secretary and her husband had an adopted boy, a real fine young man. He grew up, joined the Navy, and was flying a plane off of a carrier out in San Francisco Bay. 20 years ago, and uh, the plane took off the character, uh, of, the, of the carrier, went 2,000 feet into the air, turned over, and straight into the into the water. Never did find the plane or the boy either. Anyhow, the parents got the, it seemed like she told me they got $30,000 insurance from the government, and they took nearly all of it to establish a home for delinquent boys, uh, kids who were in trouble. This was before the dope craze hit the country uh, 20 years ago. But even then, uh, we, we get to thinking that, uh, that we've got something really terrible when our young people get strung out on marijuana or heroin or whatever it may be. Uh, but, uh, but even before this, there were always those who were in trouble of one kind or another. So they started a home out in Oklahoma for boys who were in trouble with the law, sort of a boys' ranch sort of thing. And, and, and sure enough, sure enough, the field went out to all the churches, support this good work. And so far as I know, the project is still going. Now, this sort of thing, this sort of thing came among the churches of Christ and it received a tremendous impetus following the Second World War, not because there was any more need then than there had been before, but we had a whole lot of people who became much more affluent. 
money became more plentiful and the church of Christ moved into the social gospel problem. Somebody said, do you think it's wrong to eat a sandwich in the church building? Well, as a matter of fact, I don't. Uh, I've eaten lots of them. And, and occasionally drink a Coca-Cola. If somebody will give me one. And uh, I, I have no particular feeling about that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church getting involved on a church level as a church project in all these social movements. I'm not saying, of course, that orphan children shouldn't be cared for. You know, it, it, it's a sort of a strange thing. I've got used to it but now. We had a real sweet little girl come to church at Cahaba Heights last spring. And uh, she, she and her husband, they're, they're faithful. Yeah, she's about 19 years old. She's from over in Georgia. She's very faithful to, the, to attend the services, and we were, uh, we talked together quite a bit. She went back home, and she came back, went home for a weekend. She came back to church, and uh, the first time she was back, I saw her crying. So I said, okay, Pam, come on back in the office. Tell me what, what this, I thought she'd had a fight with her husband, you know. Uh, he wasn't with her. He had to work that night. And she came back, and I, I said, uh, are, are you and, uh, and your husband having trouble? She said, well, no, no. She said, I was home over the weekend, and I told my mother and father where I was going. Well, so they, they knew where I was going. I had written them before. And she said, uh, they told me not to come here anymore. And I said, why? And she said, uh, well, the good pastor had been down there in a meeting, and he told them that this church didn't believe that you ought to take care of orphan children. And she said, I said, well, mother, they're not that kind of people. I don't know anything about the... I don't know what you're talking about, but they are not the kind of people that would let an orphan child starve to death. I just know they're not. But she said, Mother told me that, that, that I'm going to the wrong church, that, that, that this church doesn't believe in caring for orphan children. Well, of course, I had to go through the whole thing and explain to her. And... Uh, and she heaved a sigh of relief. She says, I knew there was something wrong with that. I knew that couldn't be so. Well, I said, the, the people here are, are, they're kind people. They wouldn't let a child starve to death. I knew there was something wrong with it. So I explained to her the whole social gospel bit. Certainly we believe in caring for orphan children. Certainly we believe that the old people ought to be provided for. I think it's a marvelous idea to have a summer camp and let the kids get out of the streets, out of the slums, and go to it. As some of you know, 
Well, let, let me just put a little parenthesis in here and, and talk for a minute about something else. I don't know whether all this church knows it or not, but, but uh, if you don't, you will. Now, this church is helping support me. This church is, is supporting me to the extent of $100 a month. As I go among the churches in these weekend meetings, uh, somebody wants to know, well, uh, can't these churches where you go support you? No, not really. I just come from Hobbs, New Mexico. They gave me, they, they paid my, my, my fare, $175, a round trip out there and back. Uh, just uh, before that, I was up in Lethbridge, Alberta. And uh, they gave me $100. My, my fare up there was 375 uh, so, uh, uh, fortunately, this church and two others are, are giving me some support. But three days a week, I work in a, in a motivation center, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And this provides me a sort of a basis, of, uh, a minimum income, so that with the help of a few churches like this one, I, I can still for the present, pay the grocery bills. Now, I don't know about next week. I may not be able to do it if things keep on going up. But uh, anyhow, among the young people who come to us are a great many from church homes. These kids are in all kinds of problems. Uh, many of them are on, on alcohol. Uh, a lot of them, some of them are on hard drugs. Some of them are on marijuana. And uh, these children, these, these young people, I don't call them children anymore, teenagers, uh, anywhere from, uh, oh, I guess from uh, 12 to 22 or 23 years of age, nearly all of them who are on hard drugs started with marijuana. Now that's, somebody said, well, do you, do you think there's anything wrong with marijuana? Well, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I, I've seen what it does. And there's all kinds of efforts now to legalize the stuff. And perhaps it's, it's not addictive in the sense that, that uh, heroin or cocaine may be, but it does prepare the ground. It prepares the way for it. And uh, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty sad thing for, for a youngster to get involved in it. What I started to say, though, these, these young people come from homes that were inadequate, where there was no communication or very little between father and mother, and, and, and between father and mother and the children. The parents got busy, the kids grew up, and, uh, and, and had to fend for themselves. I was in Spur, Texas a few years ago, and the church was building some Sunday school rooms. I stayed with one of the elders. And his wife commented one night, she said, I think the church here is making a real serious mistake. And I said, well, well, Karen, why do you say that? And, uh, and she said, well, they aren't making any provision for the young people. I said, what do you have in mind? She said, well, I think they ought to make some sort of a, of a recreation room or... A uh, place where the kids could have a Coke machine and a 
jukebox and, and some uh, ping pong tables and one thing or another. Uh, get the kids off of the streets. Let them go down to the church building. And, and, and I said to her, uh, how many of those kids are yours? Of course I knew four of them were. And she said, well, four. I said, did it ever occur to you that that's what a family is for? That's what a father and mother are for. That's what a family does. Uh, the family provides the social atmosphere for their children. That's, that's not the business of the elders of the church. The elders of the church are not to involve themselves in trying to provide what the family doesn't provide. But, but all this idea of church recreation centers, supervised programs, many churches of Christ are now employing full-time recreational directors. Full-time recreational directors. I was out at the, at the Uptown Church in Long Beach, California over oh, four or five years ago. Well, longer than that. Uh, maybe seven years ago. Harry Pickup and I were out there and, and we were being shown through the place. Don Hardage uh, was working with the church there. And, uh, and he was showing us their, their kitchen, their warming ovens. They could feed more people in the recreation room than they could seat in the auditorium. I think 350. They had, uh, it, it looks like the Waldorf Astoria kitchen. Uh, they, they had facilities for all kinds of people. And this young man was the recreational director at that time. And he showed us their archery range in their vacation Bible school. They teach the boys and girls how to shoot with a bow and arrow. I can just, uh, I can just imagine Paul saying, that, now come, Timothy, let me instruct you how to use a bow and arrow because you're going out to preach the gospel of Christ and it would be good for you to know how to use a bow and arrow. Harry Golden is a Jew over in North Carolina. And, and as uh, uh, he wrote a little squib in Life magazine a few years ago concerning the Jew and the modern churches, he said, if I were confronted with a choice my forefathers had, either become a Christian or get your head chopped off, he said, I'd become a Christian real fast. He said, there's nothing in the modern Christian church that offends me. He said, you go to the service and the preacher gets up and gives a book review and then we all go downstairs and play bingo. And, and uh, he said, uh, uh, 500 years from now when archaeologists dig up the ruins of these old churches, and see all the, the, the dining tables and the warming ovens and the stoves and the refrigerators, they'll wonder what kind of strange gods we worship, that we had all these facilities. The modern church, the social gospel. All right, let's get back to the, to the thing I was talking about. The churches of Christ have not been involved in this until the last 25 years. But we are really involved in it now. And the first part of many new churches that is planned is what they call the fellowship hall. 
the banquet room, the recreation center. Anything wrong with recreation? Not from my point of view. Anything wrong with a banquet? No, I love them. Anything wrong with a, uh, any kind of, a, of an activity? Anything wrong with a hospital? Certainly not. Anything wrong with an old folks home? Anything, any, anything wrong with a home for unwed mothers? No, the girls need it. Incidentally, we have, we have several coming to the motivation center for help, counseling, guidance. Anything wrong with it? Not a thing in the world. Not a thing wrong with it. But that's not the business of the church. The church has a, a responsibility to provide for the needy, but her real function is spiritual and the other is on the periphery. It's, it's uh, secondary, incidental. If every church of Christ on this earth spent every dollar of her income and every member of every church liquidated all of his assets and put it into a benevolent fund, it wouldn't be a drop in the bucket. Millions of people would be hungry and underprivileged in spite of it. And we have something better than that, the bread of life. In the apostolic age, there was famine, there was injustice, there was privation, starvation, hardship. But the apostles of Christ spent their time in preaching the gospel of Christ. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. The church's mission is spiritual and only secondary social. Certainly, when the Jerusalem Christians were in distress, those who had houses and lands sold them, brought the possessions, brought the, thing, the, the, the price of the things sold. Later at the apostles' feet, distribution was made to all according as any man had need. This was an emergency situation. The church of Jerusalem deprived herself of her, uh, of her capital assets. And so for many, many years, the church at Jerusalem was herself an object of charity. After finally about the year 56, 57, Paul, Titus, and others took up a general contribution to relieve the chronic distress of the Jerusalem Christians. They did provide for their own. And if a, if a woman in the church was a widow indeed, had nobody to provide for her, then the church could provide for her. But this was all secondary. It was not the primary mission of the church. Okay, I guess that's about enough. Some of you may have a question that you want to ask. If you do, why, let's have it. I'll do. We're, we're kind of turning this into a class session now. Anybody want to... Yeah, I'll mention one. G.K. Wallace, who uh, had been a long-time friend of mine, uh, made us uh, uh, an argument about the uh, the water cooler. He said that if it's wrong for a church to have a kitchen, 
But it's wrong for a church to have a, a, a water fountain. And he, he asked, where is the scripture that justifies a restroom? Trying to show how silly it is, of course. Where is the scripture that justifies, if you can't have a kitchen, you can't have a restroom? Well, one of the brethren, I thought, came up with a real good passage on that. Uh, Paul said, let all things be done decently and in order. And he says, when you've got a five-year-old boy jumping up and down and saying, Mama, i got to go, i got to go, and there's no place for him to go, you kind of have disorder. So you, you, you let all things be done decently and in order. A church provides facilities. We have a cooling system. We have a heating system. We don't have to have them. Churches in the Middle Ages didn't have them. Church buildings were neither heated nor cooled. But these things are incidental. We are commanded to meet together. We provide the facilities for that. We have the, the building to keep the rain off of us, keep the cold out. We, we're commanded to meet. We must have a place to meet. We either rent that place or we own it. The Bible doesn't say. Matter of human judgment. But the mission of the church is spiritual and not social. Anybody want to say anything? If you don't, I'm going to quit. Brother Blue. Like what? Preaching the gospel. All right. Yes, yes. The primary work of the church. Well, let, let, me, let me put it like this. The church's mission is number one to preach the gospel, number two to care for the saints who are in need, and number three, edification. To preach the gospel, to provide for those who are her responsibility, food, shelter, clothing, whatever they may need, and to edify or strengthen the saints. Our mission on this earth is spiritual. But many, many churches have increasingly put the emphasis on this present world, social. It's, it's just like this. Here is a, a commission. Here's an expedition who has been authorized by our government to go to a South Sea island and spend one year in studying the plant life of that island. They're trying to find some way to bring grasses or trees or whatnot that can be 
a part of our uh, a part of our national product transplanted to this country. So uh, the twenty men over here, they have uh, or ten men, and they have so much money from the government and so much time. They go over there. They're going to stay one year. They spend eleven months providing a house in which to live so that they can go ahead with their mission. The point is that many churches spend far more in trying to improve this world than they do in trying to prepare men for the world to come. Our mission is spiritual. Our goal is heaven and not here. If Right. Uh, he said, go and, and, and tell, what was it? Go and tell John the things which you see in here. What was that, Matthew 11? Yes, uh, that there were many people in the Lord's day who starved to death. Who starved to death. In, in every age. There has probably never been a year since, almost since recorded history, that there have not been thousands of people who have been in very distress. When Paul came into Philippi, he did not organize a program of Philippian relief for the poor of the city. When he came into Rome, he did not organize a program to abolish the gladiatorial shows with all that brutality. He came to preach the gospel, and he preached it even in Caesar's palace, the gospel, man's hope of eternal salvation. Richard? Uh, two points regarding that. I, I also uh, thank God for the work of the church like the father got a little more puzzle of the world. He left the and I, and came back and closed it all together. He said, well, somehow you can't that. He said, well, how do you Thank you. 
teacher, Lemoyne Lewis, attended some sort of a youth meeting, religious conference, in New York City. And he came back and reported to the people at the college, uh, uh, one of the meetings. He said, when I was up there, said I was really embarrassed. Some of these young people asked me, how many hospitals does the Church of Christ have? And he said, I had to hang my head in shame and acknowledge that we don't have even one tiny little teeny-weeny hospital anywhere. Well, we've got it now. But Glenn Wallace, who was preaching for the college church, was commenting to me. He said, well, if they had asked him how many grain elevators does the Church of Christ have, would he have been really embarrassed to say that we don't have one tiny little grain elevator? The Mormon church has some. If he had asked how many banks does the Church of Christ have, would we have been really distressed to say, not a single bank? We're really out of it. We don't, not, not even a branch bank anywhere. Would he have been really embarrassed if they had said, by the way, how many breweries does the Church of Christ have? Would he have been really embarrassed to say, we don't even have one word out still? Uh, the Catholic Church has some breweries. The Catholic Church has them. And if they had asked him, how many newspapers does the Church of Christ have? How many insurance companies does the Church of Christ have? We don't have any. Uh, I, I really hang my head in shame about this, but, but we just don't have them. The Mormons have them. You start asking questions. Now, I don't think that was the point that Brother Terry had in mind. Uh, nothing particularly wrong in that. But uh, when, a, when a church undertakes this kind of a program, as far as I'm concerned, I, I haven't seen too much of, about it. But when the church undertakes a program with the idea of, uh, of imitating the people around us and outdoing them at their own business, we may be headed in the wrong direction. Richard? I might clarify that on the bus
$30,000 on those things when there, there is no need for it. Well, when the people can pick them up themselves. Uh, I think if you're wasteful, you don't need to be spending your things like that. When members and it encourages labor on the part of the members not to get out and do the work themselves. Uh, that's my opinion. Yeah. I like to get off this day some of some what? Each. Well, I don't know too much about them. If anybody wants to come by and pick me up, uh, let me know in advance and I'll, I'll try to be ready. Tom, you want to say anything? You happy about all this? Oh, I'm on the back seat back there. No, we couldn't. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Bodily exercise. Where is it? First Timothy six, is it? Uh, bodily exercise. Uh, bodily exercise profitable, profited little. I get it. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, bodily exercise is all right. That's not the primary mission of man's life on the earth. It, it's nice to look like Mr. America, you know, and uh, pull it in here and stick it out here. Uh, uh, that's all right. Nothing particularly wrong with that. But uh, on the television tube a while back, I, I saw... Mr. America parading around, you know, and oh, he was showing his muscle. Uh, I need a dress if I'm going to do this. But uh, I have no particular objection to a man having big biceps. When I was uh, a youngster, I, I used to think that I'd like to have something like that. Uh, that's not what a man's life is. That's not what it's for. That's not what it's all about. Uh, okay, Chris? Well, I say that it's wrong for a church to have a kitchen? Yes. Had three kitchens. Well... That's thinking of the church kitchen as a as a social activity not to feed the hungry but for social communication all right 
out in Colorado Springs. Let me, let me go back a little bit beyond that. For years in my childhood, in my young manhood, uh, and that's so far back now, I can, I can hardly even remember when I was middle-aged, but uh, for years, every summer, when we had our gospel meeting, the people would come to the service in wagons and ride mules and horses, and, and a few of the rich people would have an old Model T Ford, but most of us couldn't afford that. And we would bring our dinner. Everybody would bring a basket. And we'd have church service. Then we'd all go out under the trees. And if it was raining, we'd get back in the back of the church somewhere. And all spread our meals. I didn't see anything in the world wrong with it. Then after we got through, about 3 o'clock, we'd go back to this building and, and either have a singing or have, usually have preaching. And uh, then we'd go home and milk the cows and slop the hogs and feed the chickens and, and try to get back to church for a night. These early Christians, these early Christians, many of them were slaves. They came to church and they quite often stayed all day. And they brought their meals. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians 11. So each one takes his own meal and, and one is hungry and another is drunken. One is surfeited, one, one is sated with food, and, and right beside him is a hungry fellow. So now if you're going to have that kind of spirit, you eat at home. But so far, he didn't say that it was wrong for them to eat when they came together, and they did. Now, uh, this, uh, this situation that you pose is a very... It's, it's, a, it's a case in point, and a real good one. But many years ago, Clyde Wallace told me this. And, and take a look. He said, we'll start over here with something that's obviously right, and over here is something that's obviously wrong. And then we'll start coming together, you know, and, and finally we'll get a little bit closer and closer and closer, and we've got a gray area in here where the distinctions disappear. And he said the people who started the missionary societies would always want to argue all the cases right here in this gray area. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that the thing that you propose, uh, uh, the, the, the situation that you mentioned, Brother Black, would fall within this area. Uh, there are situations in which it might be right. It, it might be perfectly right, or, or it might not be. But we've got to look at the, at the tendency of these things. Which way is it going? Kind of get back, gets back to the old uh, argument that you used to have in the Middle Ages. How many hairs make a beard? You know how many? One. Somebody said, oh, well, one hair is not a beard. Well, no, if a fellow just has one hair, that's not a beard. But if he has a thousand, that is a beard. Okay. If he has two, that's not a beard. If he has 999, that is a beard. So you start coming together, and finally, the difference between beard and no beard 
is one half. You finally get to the point you say, yeah, now he's got a bit. Uh, so we, we start with something over here that's right, that, that nobody can object to. For example, uh, I presume nobody would object to our dinner on the ground sort of thing. Everybody brought his own lunch, dinner on the ground. Well, if, if, if that's right, uh, what would be wrong? Uh, we got to have some water to drink. Well, the church, the church uh, has a, a fountain here. Why can't we get the water out of the church's fountain? Okay. Well, the church furnishes the water for our dinner on the ground. Yeah. Well, that's all right. Uh, if, if the church can furnish the water, we need something to to heat the coffee with, and there's a there's sort of a, a grill down here where they heat the water to to wash the communion cups. So why can't the church supply the heat for the coffee? Well, okay. Well, if the church can supply the heat for the coffee, if they pay for the gas bill, they can also buy the coffee. Well, to buy the coffee, they can surely afford a little bit for, for some sugar to go in it, and a little bit more for some cream to go in it. Well, if the church can buy the coffee and the sugar and the cream, then, then they, they, can, they can surely get a box of crackers. And, and, and you keep going, you know, and finally you get over here where you've got a church with three kitchens. So, so somewhere, somewhere you've got to say, this is right and this is wrong. Oh, now come. You're not as old as you look. You couldn't be. <laughs> no, they didn't go to eat. Well, uh, well, a Christian, his buddies didn't go to, to eat either. They went to worship, right? Okay, unless we're going to stay on that. Right. Provided for this purpose. Uh, uh, the church becomes a social, a socializing institution. With, with the emphasis set on this person. I baptized, I baptized a Lutheran boy last spring. And uh, I said, uh, uh, he, by the way, he was... He was a, what do they call him, youth leader or president of one of their clubs or something. And, and I said, uh, Everett, uh, how much, uh, 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 tell me about this Lutheran church where you go. He said, well, I hardly ever, I hardly ever go to the church services. said, uh, we have our youth meetings, and, uh, and once a week we have a banquet. But, uh, and, and I said, well, what do they do on Sunday morning and Sunday night? He said, well, I don't know what to do on Sunday morning. I don't go there. And, and, and Sunday night, I go to the youth meeting. I don't go to church. And Wednesday night, we have a church banquet. The whole church comes together, and, and we have a banquet. This, this is our fellowship night. And we usually have somebody make sort of a 10-minute inspirational talk. And uh, he said, really? I just kind of got fed up with the, with the social clubs. Uh, and of course, uh, I baptized him. Uh, 
Okay, uh, all right, Tom. You emphasize it. Just the West Pike Speak Church in the Colorado where you went? Well, I don't know about that one. I had a meeting at West Pike Speak a few years ago, and there were some lovely families that had beautiful girls in them. You would have enjoyed that, Chris. Uh, uh, it, it may have been. And, and, there may be situations, you see, as this you described, in which it would be uh, permissible or, or, or even uh, a good thing for some kind of provision to be made so that uh, these young men could come to the service and, and could worship with the congregation. Yeah, well, oh, okay, that, that's a different subject. Uh, let's come back in the morning. I, I want to talk tomorrow afternoon particularly on congregational cooperation. Several of you have asked me about the, the hell of truth. You, you may know, I, I presume most of you do, but probably you don't, that I had, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not a religion sort of fellow. I don't carry a chip on my shoulder. I've never had but two debates in my life. Both of them were with Ernest Harper over the hell of truth. Uh, 1955 and 1956, I believe, somewhere along there. And uh, when James Walter Nichols, who, who died this summer, young man, when James Walter Nichols started the hell of truth, he was only 22 or 23 years old when he started it, he came to my home uh, with a presentation of what I thought he wanted to do. And it looked to me like it was pretty good, but when the thing got rolling, what he, what he described to me was not what really developed. And I've got a whole filing cabinet at, in, in my office filled with literature from the Hell of Truth and about the Hell of Truth. Until late years, I think I knew pretty well how the thing was developed and, and, and how, how it went. I want to talk tomorrow afternoon on congregational cooperation. What was wrong with it? What, what provision can be made by which the churches can carry on a joint effort, a cooperative effort of that sort? Or is it possible for us to have worldwide, nationwide or worldwide projects and programs of that nature? How churches can and cannot cooperate. In, in the morning, 50 years of the Church of Christ, 1920 to 1970. And then, then the service will close tomorrow night. Our, our final song.
633, if, if there's somebody present who is ready to respond to the invitation of Christ, understands what the Lord requires, uh, you say, well, church having all these kind of problems, I don't know. If you ever belong to the Lord's church, you'll belong to a church that has problems. The Lord's church always has and always will. But the beautiful thing about that is that the Lord has provided us a solution to them. So all we've got to do is to keep our hearts and our minds open, study, pray, find God's will, and then do it. If you want to be a Christian, this is the time, and will you respond to the invitation as we stand together and say, Kelly, so why will you linger wandering from the fold of God? Hear you not the invitation of the Oh, <laughs> 